Hi, this is CognitionX's podcast series where we look at the impact of AI and emerging technology on industry, government and society. I'm Charlie Muirhead. And I'm Tabitha Goldstorff. And this episode is a COGX Festival special. In June 2019, we were honoured to bring together 20,000 visitors who came to hear from over 600 speakers across 12 stages in the heart of King's Cross. Our mission is to bring clarity and help ensure responsible deployment and really move the conversation forward. We believe that AI has enormous opportunity for everybody, business, society, the planet. But only 12% of people think that technology has helped society. We won't reap the benefits of AI if we don't avoid the risks of AI. Organizations and individuals developing, deploying, or operating AI systems should be held accountable for their proper functioning. In this episode, you'll get to hear from some of the leading economists in the world, Kate Raworth, Mariana Mazzucato, Bill Janeway, and Jeffrey Sachs, as Azim Azar takes us on a path of rethinking our governments and rethinking economies. The panel touches on so many interesting topics, including the mismatch between the power of states, the power of corporations, how politicians are becoming more involved in supporting innovation. In so many ways, this is the beginning of your journey in understanding the political economic landscape and what might need to change in order to ensure that technology is good for society. One of the things that uh, I think has uh, come across has been a mismatch between the, uh, the power of the state and the power of the corporation and the corporation as representative of, of the market. So I'm curious from a maybe a generative perspective, um, how might we go about rebalancing that or Perhaps we, we don't need to. Maybe, Kate, you'd like to... Or Mariana would... Um, it depends what you mean by power. So there's huge power in terms of the financing, right? I mean, Elon Musk got five billion, <laughs> that's nine zeros in case people forgot, um, from the US government. So it's, you know, if you look at the power of the finance, it's actually almost just as large, public and private, and in fact, as I was saying, the public side is often taking these larger risks. What we have is a, is a crisis of narrative, of discourse, what I call value. You know, Plato said storytellers rule the world. And these stories were telling about the role of the state, which first of all completely dismissed the history that both Bill and I have written about, are really toxic. And so when we actually need to catalyze and galvanize this real collective uh, investment process in order to solve these SDGs, it's really hard to do if one side is seen as just de-risking the risk takers, enabling, facilitating, at best correcting market failures. We really do need a framework. And it's not that theory matters and without a great theory we can't do stuff, but there's a real kind of correlation between the two. In sociology they call it performativity. How you actually talk about something actually then starts to to affect how that something acts. And I think we need to debunk these myths. And I do think there is some responsibility in the tech community of propagating some of the myths of what you know the garage tinkers, the entrepreneurs are doing. They wouldn't exist without these public funds that we're saying have to kick in. But now we have the, the need to react to what we've enabled. Yeah. And you know, history does, is, is a useful uh, source of metaphors as well as experience. 120 years ago, in the first Gilded Age in America, there, the giant companies of that time, the Standard Oils, the railroads, were at least as powerful, at least, and, and, and the government, the state, 
and those days represented order of magnitude 1% of the national economy. Even in the U.S., it's 35%, and obviously greater. There was available a reservoir of outrage, mm. populist outrage, which then got effectively channeled by a set of politicians of whom the most well-known and most best-remembered was Theodore Roosevelt, but he was by no means the only one, which produced a counterweight, an effective counterweight. We called it the antitrust laws in the U.S., but think of it as competition policy. Now, if you look around today, you clearly can see, if you like, the green shoots of a political response to the enormous power of the digital giants. Some of it is undoubtedly going to be misapplied, contradictory, uh, and in some ways um, utterly inconsistent. But once that gets flowing, I think the, new, the real challenge today is for political leaders who can channel the populist outrage, not like Boris Johnson, uh, but into productive and constructive responses to make sense, to bring some coherence to the digital chaos that we're living with. Kate, I think you have something probably to say on that score, given your work on what we do about filling in that hole in the donut economy. I, 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 the point I was making about going from centralizing to distributive technologies, to me this is such an extraordinary opportunity, and I just want to illustrate it here. 20th century oil rig coal mine, 21st century energy right here in this little wallet, I have a solar panel, right? It's, it's phenomenal how, how, we, how we generate the goods and services we want. The technologies are changing. And in 10 years' time, this will look clunky. But what matters most is not, to me, not the design of the technologies. It's the design of the enterprises that manage them and choose to what purpose they're put. And for me, I use a lens upon every enterprise, be it a corporation, a, a social enterprise startup, five design traits of enterprise. What is its purpose? What is it, or in networks, what are the networks it moves in? Who its customers, suppliers, its allies, the progressive uh, alliances it becomes part of? How is it governed? from its principles, its regulations, to its culture, the metrics, the incentives it gives its staff, but then most profoundly, how is it owned? And this comes back to, is it owned by venture capital? Is it owned by its employees? Is it owned by the state? Is it owned by shareholders? Because how it's owned determines how it's financed and the intent of that finance. And to me, under so much of what we're saying is the intent of finance determined by ownership. And we need to get down to redesigning that so that we have ownership and finance of enterprise directing phenomenal technologies in pursuit of those sustainable development goals, in pursuit of the Paris Agreement. And until we align that, we're going to continually see this split, which Jeff so eloquently puts as the game. We sign up to high-minded goals and head off absolutely the other direction because the design of enterprise is not remotely aligned with achieving that. I just I wanted to uh, point out how modern capitalism started uh, 400 uh, some years ago. Probably the, the first uh, modern capitalist venture was uh, by a, uh, an English terrorist, uh, Francis Drake, uh, who uh, was funded to go sink uh, Spanish galleons. Uh, and uh, he did in 1587, he uh, captured uh, the Golden Hind. Who was his lead investor? It was Queen Elizabeth. Uh, 
this was uh, the start of modern capitalism. Uh, the state and the company were intertwined in, in international illegal enterprise. And it worked out so well that 13 years later, the East India Company was established, again with the state guaranteeing uh, the debts of a private company. So this goes back uh, a long time. Back in 1600, though, a royal charter was still an unusual uh, step for a company. Now we have turned the entire economy over to the corporate form. And it is, by design, a limited liability regime, which means break every rule, break every law, lobby us to your heart's content. You have no liability for that if you make money pocketed it. So it's a pretty fundamental design problem. It has its deep roots in uh, this country's glorious history, uh, which invented modern capitalism. Uh, but it has become a generalized proposition. We need a strong state representing not the companies themselves, but representing the citizenry to control this. But it doesn't work country by country anymore. That's why, of course, the tragedy of Brexit is uh, such an absurdity, uh, is, is upon us. Britain by itself means nothing in this world, sorry to tell you. Uh, nor does the United States mean anything by itself. The world's not going to be determined by what happens uh, in the British Isles, as might have seemed the case 200 years ago. So there's a little nostalgia at play that is rather shockingly naive uh, in 2019. We have a global stage, and we better be cooperating, actually, globally to control the global behemoths that have been created and that walk the planet and shift money at will to places that protect uh, their uh, bank balances from taxation. And it's rot within the US because that's a big tax haven. It's rot within the European Union because half the European Union is a tax haven or a facilitator of tax havens. And it cannot be solved by any one country or even the EU or the US alone. It's interesting that the G20 began to talk about this uh, a little bit over the weekend. That's something, uh, not much, but it is something. But stop Brexit, stop busting the Europe, and then we need global cooperation in order to honestly address these issues because not one of them is solvable at a national or even a regional level. And stop trying to make a new Cold War with China. That's the US latest brilliant idea. Could not be dumber. Buy Huawei, please. It's unbelievable what they're trying to do. They're out of their minds because they think that they can get another century of US primacy, but they're nuts. They're going to create war if we don't stop this. So my point is, this story goes back a long way. Now we need to follow the goals we've set, but only by global cooperation to break the privileges, the tax havens, to be able to collect the revenues needed and to avoid conflict.
Now, uh, Jeff, I promised to be your timekeeper because you have a... Hard stop, yep. So should we... Do you want to run now? No, one, you'll keep going. You'll keep going. I have one, one minute, one or two so minutes. We have ten yeah. minutes left. We're going to make this a little bit rapid fire. I'm going to limit people to about 42 seconds uh, in responses. We uh, touched on something. We keep coming back to this, which is we have to redesign these systems. The, the, the roadmaps that you've come up with are quite sophisticated. Donuts, missions, arrows, charts. Um, those sort of suggest you need technocratic solutions. Um, and yet we are at a time, Bolsonaro, Duterte, would-be Johnson, Trump, of people who are governing for the emotional needs of the people, not for the, the, the sort of real and deeper needs. How do we get our politics to support the institutional change that the roadmaps are playing out? Maybe if I could ask Mariana, and then come to you, Bill. Yeah, so I, I didn't have time to go through the thousand slides I prepared wrongly for an eight-minute talk, but one of them was about criteria. So instead of thinking of sort of a top-down Kennedy-style mission, what's, what's been interesting, for example, in Germany is that their Energiewende mission, which has been about reducing, really, the material content of the entire manufacturing base in order to move towards a, a, a you know, lower carbon content economy, actually came out of 30 years of a green movement. You know, I mean, basically what Merkel did was, you know, they brought sustainability to the fore and she transformed it into a mission which then really required transformation across many sectors. So again, it wasn't a handout, it was a transformation. And the tools, like the public bank, KFW, you know, those tools were conditional on uh, uh, um, sectors like steel to transform themselves. But the fact that it was actually a movement really begs the question, do we even have capabilities inside governments to engage with that kind of conflict and contestation, which, for example, social care movements have today around the world? But also, we shouldn't forget about demand. I mean, you were saying those five design principles. One thing which our colleague Carlotto reminds us, that without, for example, suburbanization, we would not have had, you know, the mass production revolution would not have had the effect it did across the whole economy. So how to actually both enable this bottom-up you know, experimentation, but also never forget that demand doesn't just happen because people wake up one day wanting to move to the suburbs. That was actually, you know, that came out of policy and that actually facilitates these big changes to actually be, you know, have an effect in terms of cross-sectoral impact. I think it's really critical in the context of any conversation like this to remember how recent and how fragile the coexistence of representative democracy and market capitalism is. Representative democracy emerged in the 19th century as a counterweight to the industrialization of economic life and the mass industrialization of it. It is under enormous stress virtually everywhere in the Western world and much of the Eastern world. The, the digital revolution has enabled, has enabled China to propose an alternative, what I call the, the not-so-benevolent surveillance state, in, unthinkable in the absence of the digital revolution. So before we can even get to the sort of narratives that can mobilize people productively, we need to recognize how serious this threat is and that the leaders that Jeff identified are symptoms, they're symptomatic of the greatest threat to representative democracy since the 1930s and with similar motivation and we may hope not similar consequences. So, Kate, you're the catalyst of a movement. Uh, are you finding governments are engaging with you to help rethink their policies in the ways that Mariana has described? 
Yes, I've been amazed actually by the number of governments. Because the, when I wrote Journal Economics, Seven Ways to Think, like a 21st century economist, I went for the long view, and I intentionally did not try to make it palatable, accessible, pragmatic, and implementable for 2020. And I've been amazed by the number of governments that actually have said. We want this, and across the political spectrum, whether here in the UK, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, I was just in New Zealand, where the Minister of Finance said we want to create a donut economy here in New Zealand. There is a hunger amongst politicians, amongst civil servants, for a vision of something. And then you said, okay, these these visions, whether it's a donut or a mission, these are complex. I would actually counter the opposite. I think they are irresistibly and compellingly clear. We want. A, a thriving planet and human flourishing for all people get that. They get that within the context of their own community and in the world, and it's not easy to get there. But people understand that, and I think politicians are desperate to break out of this endless kind of focus on growth, everything, and talk about people again and talk about a thriving economy. So they are looking for a new language, and, and the only place I think they'll get the chance to speak it is when there's enough of a constituency that represents it. I'm working with cities that say we want to use these ideas to transform our city. Here in London, in Amsterdam, in the U.S., we're working with community groups, working with companies, with banks. Got to build a constituency that wants that transformation, holds that vision, and politicians can then step there because they know there are people who already share that view. Thank you. Now, as an entrepreneur, one of the things I've had to do is focus. Out of all the hundreds of things I can do, you can only choose to do one. Now, we've heard a lot of tension here. We've got the, the SDGs. There are many of them. Kate, you've talked about the regenerative economy and the distributive uh, economy. Let's play some hardball here. If you had to prioritize one, wealth distribution or sustainability in the next five or seven years. Which one would it be? I'm going to start with you, Jeff, because I know you have to get off. The yeah,、train. I have to go,、uh, but you don't. You don't have to prioritize. So false choice. Oh,、Thanks. okay. <laughs> Thank you for Jeff. I'll follow. I'll finish up for you. Johnny Cash wrote a great song called "Why Do I Have to Choose?" Make everybody lose. The whole point about. Wealth distribution and sustainability is that it can be reconciled. That is why I think the language of the Green New Deal has such resonance. I think it was an—it's a brand. It's not a plan. The plan, when developed, as and when it's developed, is going to be again contradictory and inconsistent. But the notion that there is some way to achieve the long-term goals by, in the short run. Empowering people and, in fact, paying them. You imagine the number of jobs to be created by reducing the wasted heat coming out of houses, and, of course, putting those solar panels on. The tools are there. It is the narrative that we need, and I think we're beginning to see that narrative emerge in the U.S. And that's the most encouraging thing since 2016 that I've been able to take note of. Mariana, can we have both? I I think it's a really dangerous question. I mean, I actually think it's why many kind of center-left parties and movements are kind of failing to win the narrative. If you just talk about redistribution, what are you redistributing? If you can't debunk the fact that actually where lots of this wealth comes from was actually an outcome of a social collective process, and then what does it mean to really fortify those collective processes? Then it's it, 
And also, just, it's not very interesting, it's not dynamic. I mean, when Obama had his um, Affordable Care Act and he was accused by the Tea Party for meddling in you know, people's health care, his response was the classic social democratic response, which is, this is the right thing to do because otherwise, you know, 60, uh, um, uninsured, uh, sorry, 60 million uninsured people won't get you know, access to health care. He should have said, meddling? What are you talking about? We actually created 75% of the drugs inside the health care system. So, of course, we have the right to redistribute that in ways that actually reflect that collective uh, risk-taking process. And unless we do that, again, this... the this power dynamic will not get debunked. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that the you know, big tech giants are supporting UBI. I'm not against UBI, I actually think it's a good idea, but the narrative behind it is you know, we're creating wealth and then we'll give a handout. So the universal basic dividend or the citizen's share is already something very different in terms of the narrative. You are redistributing wealth that actually was fundamentally co-created by different types of actors, not just the wealth creators in Silicon Valley. So. I, I leave behind words because they actually fail us sometimes, and that's why I think the power of image is so strong. If I do this, that is what we're trying to create, a regenerative distributive dynamic. And nature's been doing it for 3.8 billion years. That's why there are so many species flourishing together in ecosystems. They regenerate and they distribute, and trees share energy under their roots and mycorrhizomes work magic under the soil. We need to learn to mimic this in our economies. It's, so, it's, in, this, it's in the COGX image. You know, we already recognize that this is the beautiful pattern of the 21st century, and we've got to leave behind the divisive and de degenerative patterns of the 20th. So we cannot do one without the other, and nature proves it. Well, thank you very much for that. I'm afraid we're, we're out of time uh, with this panel. for listening. If you found this episode compelling, there are three things we'd love you to do. One, subscribe to our podcast series so you don't miss another episode and please share it with your friends. Number two, if you want to experience COGX yourself, go to cogex.co and register so you hear about next year's event. And number three, if you have any other questions you'd like to ask anybody in the community, don't forget to register on cognitionx.com and ask a question on the Global Knowledge Network. Thanks for listening and let's keep moving the conversation forward together.